Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 128, How to Shape Culture to Drive Performance, featuring Lindsay McGregor. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Most business leaders today realize that a strong organizational culture is critical to success. However, Culture tends to feel like some magic force that few leaders know how to control. So most leaders try to shape culture just based on their intuition or gut instinct, or maybe they leave it to chance, or maybe they try carrot and stick approaches to drive performance. To find a systematic data-driven approach to shape culture, former McKinsey consultants Lindsay McGregor and Neil Doshi surveyed over 20,000 workers around the world. They also analyzed 50 major companies and conducted scores of experiments before arriving at one major conclusion. Why people work determines how well they work. Today we're going to talk to Lindsay McGregor about their findings, including how great organizations inspire the three most powerful motives for work, and how leaders can use a predictive new tool to measure the strength of their culture and land on the keys that shape culture to best increase total motivation. I just finished reading Lindsay and Neil's new book, Primed to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. And I have to say, I loved it, and I'm extremely excited today to talk to Lindsay McGregor. She's the co-founder of Vega Factor, the co-author of the book, and previously she led projects at McKinsey & Company, working with large Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, universities, and school systems. Lindsay McGregor, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. Lindsay, why is our natural inclination as leaders to turn to indirect motivators like pay and incentives and perks? Yeah, it's such a fascinating question. We, you know, myself as a leader, it seems like sticks and carrots are the easiest way to get somebody to do something. And sure, if I say that I'm going to punch you in the face if you don't clean out my fridge, you'll (laughs) clean out my fridge, right? (laughs) But you're not going to be thinking about how to do it in a really efficient way or a creative way or an engaging way. And sometimes we mistake speed for what's going to really create the highest quality results. So for example, there was this great experiment done by a professor at Harvard University, Professor Amabile, and she brought in a whole group of professional poets um, to come and write very short haiku-like poems. Um, And she first had them write a poem to assess their creativity at a baseline level. And then she had them each read a different list of reasons for why they wrote poetry. One group read a list of reasons that we typically use in the workforce, like what we call the indirect motives. Things like, I write poetry because I heard of one instance where somebody became financially secure by publishing a book of poems. Or... I write poetry because I don't want to disappoint my graduate school teachers or my parents. And another group read a list of what we call the direct reasons for working, which are all about the love and the impact of what you do. So for example, I love playing with words, or I love exploring new characters. And then they wrote another haiku. Now, after just a few minutes of reading those two different lists, the risk, the, those that read the list about play had an almost 30% higher creativity scores on their poems. 
which is amazing because we all tend to look at the money and the pressure and the guilt and the shame as the most powerful reasons for working, but it turns out they're not. So this study wasn't looking at what these people are more prime are more likely to be intrinsically motivated in the work and those people are bad people. It was more about how that we're actually able to prime people to think more about uh, the purpose of their work, and when when they do, that for the love of uh, of the work, for example, they actually perform better. Yeah, exactly. It's we so often think that there are people who are naturally going to be working for the right reasons, and people who aren't, and that's why so often when I sit down with leaders of a company, the first question they ask is about recruiting. It's how do I get the right people. But most organizations spend thousands of hours on recruiting and very little on the culture once somebody shows up to work. And this experiment shows that just five minutes of priming change somebody's performance dramatically. So imagine what an entire workplace does. Hmm. And okay, so that's poetry writing, but that research plays out in the business world. And yet there's a lot of examples where setting up an indirect motivator like a pay system seems to have at first maybe a positive uh, result. And so doesn't that sort of make us all assume that, well, if we just get the right bonus structure or the right financial incentives, the right pay, people will be better motivated to do good work. It's true. It's, you know, to really get at when those indirect motivators work, you have to understand that there's actually two types of performance. The first type of performance is tactical performance. And this is your ability to stick to a plan. So for example, if you and I were running a call center, the tactical performance would be things like, how many phone calls were we making a day? And how long did we spend on each phone call? And did we remember to ask everybody if we had the correct email address before they hung up on the phone? Right? Those are all the Mm -hmm. tactical performance. But there's another half of performance, which is adaptive performance. And if tactical is how well you stick to the plan, adaptive is how well you diverge from the plan. One's how well you do it, and one's how well you don't do it. Adaptive performance is things like creativity, innovation, problem-solving ethics. And all of this research out there shows that while you can drive tactical performance through sticks and carrots, you can't get adaptive performance through sticks and carrots. It actually requires a different reason for working. Wow. So a reason for working and your research essentially brought you to one primary conclusion, which is why we work determines how well we work. Tell us about that. Yes, it sounds very simple and it's probably intuitive to you and your listeners who study this, but it took us a long time to figure this out. Um, Exactly as you said, that why you work determines how well you work. And there's a spectrum of reasons for working. Three reasons improve performance and three reduce performance. So the first reason for working is what we call play. And this is when you're working because you simply enjoy the work itself. So for example, your hobbies. Uh, You don't get paid for them. You just do your hobby because you love it. I love to write. You probably love to create podcasts. Listeners probably enjoy woodworking or photography or cooking. You just do it because you love it. Then if you take a step away Um, from the work itself, the second most powerful motive is purpose, when you're working because you believe in the impact of the work. So you may or may not have play, but you have purpose because you care about it. The final reason for working is potential. 
And this is when you're working because the work is somehow going to increase your own potential as a person. So to take an example of a teacher, a teacher with play loves creating lesson plans, a teacher with purpose believes in educated students, and a teacher with potential, for example, wants to be a principal one day. The job wasn't created for them to be a principal, but the job is helping their potential to be one one day. Hmm. So play, purpose, and potential are three reasons that people work that really drive up performance. But there's also three reasons that hurt it. And the, so those, those three reasons why people work, they in particular help with that adaptive performance. Exactly, exactly. When people are working for play, purpose, and potential, things like creativity, innovation, problem-solving, ethics, those adaptive behaviors go up. So imagine our call center example. If somebody has play or purpose or potential, they're probably spending a lot more time thinking about, how do I make each customer have a great, delightful experience, for example? Or how can I help my colleague next to me do a better job? Because I heard that phone call and that one didn't go very well, and I want to help him out, right? So the other three motivators still drive why people work, but they're, they're what you call indirect motivators, and they, they actually hurt adaptive performance in particular. Tell us about those. Exactly. The first is emotional pressure. And this is when you're doing something out of fear or guilt or shame. The concept of FOMO is emotional pressure, fear of missing out. Mm. Prestige chasing is a form of emotional pressure. And so emotional pressure is why I played the piano for growing up, for example. <laughs> My mom put a lot of guilt and pressure into playing the piano. Um, and as a result, I checked the boxes, right? I did the bare minimum that I had to do to show up to my piano lessons, but no more. The next form of motivation is economic pressure. And this is when you're doing something to gain a reward or avoid a punishment. It's no longer about the work itself at all. It's just for that reward or that punishment. And then finally, inertia is when you're doing something and you cannot explain why you're doing it. You're still showing up to work, but when your friends ask you why you're sticking with that job, you say, I really can't tell you. <laughs> and that is surprisingly common in the workplace. So because you can actually measure these six motives. You can measure play, purpose, and potential, emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. Um, you can actually test how they influence people's behavior. And they've been tested by many, many academics around the world and found that they act in a very predictable way, which means we can create one concept from them all called total motivation. And total motivation adds up the play, purpose, and potential and subtracts the emotional, economic, and inertia. And that total motivation number suddenly provides all of this insight into what's driving not only individuals, but companies as well. So to measure that, you've developed a survey, um, and there's you have complex versions of the survey, and then you also have a very simple survey uh, with, with just six simple questions that, in fact, people can just go on your website to uh, complete that and for themselves or, or actually conduct a survey of their organization. Uh, is that just a, like a fun survey or are you actually able to accurately predict performance on an important outcome, let's say customer satisfaction or revenue? Oh, it's a great question. And this survey has these questions that are built upon decades of academic research. Originally, these motives were studied and developed by two professors, Professor Richard Ryan and Edward Deasy from the University of Rochester. But we've been able to build on these questions and apply them in real companies and found some amazing things. So for example, when we looked at 
um, we measured the total motivation of a group of stock pickers, people who are paid to pick stocks and trade every year. And we found that those with the highest returns were the ones that were working for play and purpose and potential and felt the least amount of emotional pressure and economic pressure and inertia. So for this organization, Tomo was worth millions of dollars every year in returns. Um, we've been able to measure Tomo in retail institutions at stores across the country and found that retail store associates with high Tomo were selling about 30% more than those with low Tomo. Even when you think about sales, for us, that's an extremely adaptive type of outcome because to really sell something, you have to really understand and adapt to each customer's unique needs, right? Understand mm -hmm. what they need and how this product is going to help them. It's a very adaptive behavior. Another adaptive behavior, for example, is customer experience, how satisfied your customers are. And when we've measured total motivation in companies and then compared it to the customer satisfaction, there's been an almost straight line relationship between the two. So for example, in the airline industry, almost a straight line between customer satisfaction and Tomo with Southwest up there at the top. So the natural question, once I agree, okay, you're right. Obviously, these are the six important, these are the, the, the six factors in that, and we need to do a better job of focusing on the three direct motivators. So how do we shape culture to emphasize those six and, and drive performance. You talk about a number of keys in the, in the book. How, what's your overview of those? Yes, it's, you know, we wish that there was one silver bullet <laughs> to culture that would make all of our lives so much easier, but unfortunately there isn't. Um, when you go and talk to somebody about why they work, they'll come up with all sorts of answers for you. They'll tell you that they would like their job if their compensation system wasn't causing them so much stress, or they would like their job if their manager wasn't being a complete jerk, or they would like their company if um, you know, they weren't working in such a siloed company that it was impossible to get anything done. And what you realize is that why people work is influenced by all of these different processes in their company. Anything from your compensation to how your job is designed to your performance reviews to how your leader is leading, all of these systems can create a toxic culture. And so all of them, we look at, we study them to see which one of these systems in your company are encouraging play and purpose and potential and which ones are actually trying to use emotional pressure and economic pressure and inertia. When you do that, one of the top keys I noticed, uh, in fact, the second most important is identity. What do you mean by that? Yes, identity was this idea of, does your company have a mission and values and a purpose? And does it not only talk the talk, but does it walk the walk? And that was the second most important thing in affecting somebody's total motivation at their job. If they believed that the organization didn't have any purpose to it, it was very demotivating. So if, if an, an individual is motivated by purpose as the, the second of the, of the direct motivators, this is the organization's uh, purpose. So that the personal why comes directly from the organization's why. Exactly. So for example, um, we were interviewing a Starbucks barista. And this barista joined Starbucks originally for economic pressure reasons. He was going to college and he needed a way to pay the bills. And so he joined Starbucks. 
And this guy was not your typical customer's friendly kind of person. Like he kind of, we called our code name for him in our interview notes was Mr. Grumpy Pants. (laughs) 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 Mr. Grumpy Pants was like a very independent principled person who did not want to be in customer service. (laughs) Um, And we really admired him, but we were surprised that he took a customer service kind of job. And when he showed up at work at Starbucks, he was expecting to just punch in, punch out, do the bare minimum. And his manager came up to him and said, you know, my goal for this Starbucks is that any person of any age, of any type, can come in and find a safe space to be comfortable and happy and at peace for a few hours. That is my goal with this Starbucks. Now, that's an amazing goal, right? Hmm. Uh, As Mr. Grumpy Pants told us, you know, the goal of his manager was about was to create the safe space. Whereas at other restaurants, he said, they ask you if you want the spicy nuggets before they ask how you are, right? Those right. are his words. <laughs> um, and so you can imagine that going into a coffee shop when that's your goal, instead of to just sell as much as possible is a very different experience, both for you and your customer. I actually told that story to my wife um, because one of the things that you mentioned in the book when you're talking about about him and you don't call him Mr. Grumpy Pants in the book is <laughs> 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 just that he he's actually um, a nice guy underneath all that. He, he but he's introverted, and it's not it's not like he doesn't want people to have a nice experience. In fact, his uh, his some of his early experiences in that role when he was trying to joke with a customer <laughs> actually sort of scared him off but just because his personal version of humor was uh, dry humor didn't really match up with them. Exactly. His, um, I think one of his, his first days, he one of his customers ordered something like a triple grande frappuccino or skinny frappuccino with lots of whipped cream or something like yeah. that. And he said, what's the point of the skinny plus the whipped cream? Um, which didn't go over that well with the customer, as you can imagine. And his leader, instead of saying, you know, that was terrible, what's wrong with you, um, told him that he needed to experiment with his style of customer service until he found a way of interacting with customers that was authentic to him and Um, helpful for customers. And that leader was really encouraging play in customer service. Because play is all about experimentation and learning. And she was saying, just learn and experiment until you find a style that connects to your customer. It's amazing that she created, or his leader created play at work because people first ask us, how can you have play in a fast food restaurant? Because a soy latte has to taste exactly the same in New York and California exactly. and Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's no room for adaptive performance, no room for play. And while the drinks do have to be exactly the same, and in every industry there are things that have to be exactly the same, there's was room for play not only in customer interaction, but also in the operations of the store, which is where Mr. Grumpy Pants really thrived. <laughs> <laughs> So he really was motivated by play, in that case of the, the experimentation, as well as just by the purpose of the of the role. And uh, just ha- having his supervisor break that down for him and, and explain the identity of what we do here at Starbucks and what our purpose is uh, made a real difference for him. Exactly. There's um, a- an amazing thing that Starbucks as a whole 
does to support this. You know, it wasn't only his manager. If you ever flip down the front of a barista's apron, which I'm guessing you haven't done. I have not. um, (laughs) (laughs) um, On the inside of that apron. I don't want to get slapped. (laughs) I know, exactly, exactly. On the inside of that apron, there's a little um, tag sewn in that says, we create inspired moments in each customer's day. Anticipate, connect, personalize, own. And that's a very inspiring statement, but what's even more inspiring is that I think most companies would put that on the outside of the apron. They sure would. Yeah, that'd be a customer branding thing. But this is done on the inside of the apron where only the associate can see it as really, I think, goes a long way to saying this is what, how we want to conduct ourselves. It's not a marketing slogan. Isn't that something? Yeah, most, they would put it on a big poster maybe or on the apron itself or have have employees wear a, a bracelet. Yep. And so it actually, because it's, uh, it, it was, it's, it's part of the organizational brand, but not a marketing brand. It's, it's just private between the company and its workforce. And so it's actually stronger that way. It, it makes the workforce trust the company more. So this really is who we are. We don't, it's not just something we're saying in advertising. Exactly. And when you measure the total motivation of Starbucks employees, for us, um, total motivation is on a score of negative 100 to 100, like the net promoter score for any listeners who are familiar with that customer metric. And Starbucks is creating about 18 points more Tomo than the average of its competitors. And that we, when we see about a 15 point gap, that's the gap between somebody who's typically legendary in their industry versus all of the rest. And so it's amazing to see that Starbucks was able to change why people work across um, all of its stores. So this factor of this key of identity, I think a lot of people would hear identity and they're going to assume that we're talking about coming up with a great logo for the company and a tagline and then just go market the heck out of that. (laughs) 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 But you're thinking a little more holistic than that. Um, What's what's the starting point in in the uh, identity factor? Mm -hmm. There's four components of identity. The first is, what's your mission? The second is, what is your behavioral code? Which is like your values, but a little bit more concrete. There's, what are your traditions and heritage? And what, sorry, what are your traditions and what's your heritage? Um, And those four things really come together to create an identity. So for example, in a mission statement, you'll see um, a lot of mission statements that are very broad and are very much based on human values. Like we aspire to be a company that operates with integrity and honesty. And, you know, from reading the mission statement, you have no idea which company this is or what industry it is. Whereas in other organizations, you find mission statements like Zappos, for example, where it's all about delivering customer happiness. It's a very different way of framing your purpose as an organization. The one is my purpose is to not be unethical. <laughs> and then the other one is <laughs> my purpose is to really delight my customers. So for a lot of employees, that purpose is sort of just handed to them. But there's a value in help in encouraging people to think about to reflect on the purpose of what they do that that even if they haven't been um, handed the perfect purpose statement for their role just reflecting on their personal role actually increases their purpose and even their play 
Yes, it's true. There's even experiments where people are asked to reflect on why they do something. Um, and the just reflecting on the why, connecting it back to their identity, their values, their beliefs, um, changes their adaptive performance for the better. Lindsay, what makes a particularly strong and effective mission statement or purpose statement? It's a great question. The purpose or mission statement really needs to connect to people's beliefs and identity and values. And there's lots of experiments that show having a what's called what a pro-social mission statement really drives performance. So pro-social is a term that many researchers use, particularly Professor Adam Grant out of Wharton. And it's a a purpose that is about helping others. So, for example, uh, we were sitting in a coffee shop in New York, uh, my co-author and I, which is where we live, and we were talking about different purpose and mission statements and the point of language. And somebody sitting next to us leaned over, because in a New York coffee shop, you're sitting six <laughs> inches away from your neighbor, and you can hear everything they say. Um, and he said, that I overheard your conversation, and I work at Rosetta Stone which is the languages company. You know, back in the day, if you were walking through an airport, you would be able to see the little Rosetta Stone kiosks where you could go and buy CD-ROMs that would teach you how to speak Spanish, for example. And they promised if I learned a certain language, I would catch that beautiful woman who's just waiting for me to speak her language. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, at Rosetta Stone, we preserve endangered languages. And he talked about how his company actually goes and records languages, for example, Navajos or Intuit tribe in Newfoundland, Canada. They actually go to where these languages are dying and record them and preserve them for future generations. And when you hear that, that that's part of the company's mission and purpose, you gain a whole new level of respect for the organization, that they exist not just to make money, but to really, truly live up to their purpose of helping the world um, preserve its languages. So it's not only about having a mission that's pro-social, but it's also doing things that actually demonstrate you care about it. So if you can state that purpose in, in a way that is inspirational and that communicates how we help people and craft your brand, both your external marketing brand as well as your internal uh, br workforce brand, that is one way to make clear what's our purpose, wh why do we exist, and uh, what's the purpose in the very work that you do. And then it's the manager's responsibility to help each, each worker figure out how their particular role links to that organizational purpose. Exactly. You know, there's an experiment done where there were a bunch of teachers with a group of kids, um, and they were bowling. And the winnings of this bowling match could be donated to charity. And they tested to see if the teacher said that they were giving to charity, but then and then gave to charity, would the kids follow suit? Or, or if the teacher said they were going to give to charity and then didn't, hmm. did the kids follow suit? And as you would expect, the kids did not they were much more likely to do it if they saw you actually give as well. It's not enough to talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. So what is your organization actually doing in its daily life to live up to its values and its mission? So you can't just put some words out there and then expect people to be inspired by them. It's got to be consistent with what you're actually doing on a daily basis. 
Exactly. Now, you mentioned as part of this identity key is the behavioral code, which, as you said, a lot of companies rattle off a list of values, five values, for example, and they're often rather broad things like integrity and honesty and innovation. And a, a behavioral code is a little different. To explain that for us. Yes, a behavioral code is the set of playground rules, right? What are the rules that you should be following while you're at play? And a behavioral code really becomes helpful when your people are in a gray zone where there's a decision that they could make and either decision would be accurate or appropriate or fair. What's your company's way of solving that situation? So for example, we were interviewing Shape Security, which is a big uh, a startup in San Francisco that makes software to help protect companies from being hacked. And their, one of their behavioral codes was that we always wait for the, the A-plus player in interviews. They had these situations where they could have said, for the sake of growing quickly, we want to, we want to hire somebody who's good enough fit for the job. Or they could have said, a reasonable, reasonable person could have said, we don't want to hire somebody until they really are the right fit for the job. They decided that part of their code was to really look for the person who is a great fit for the role before hiring. That was an example of how we think about talent, for example. Mm-hmm. There's another example of Keller Williams, for example, which is a really fast-growing real estate company. They were actually growing during the financial crisis Absolutely in amazing. 2009. Yes, wow. truly amazing story. <laughs> and they have a, a behavioral code called, don't listen to your drunk monkey. <laughs> uh, so don't listen to your drunk monkey is a code about how you should behave each and every day. Um, they said that everybody has a little monkey sitting on their shoulder who's telling them that, you know, this is a quote from a real estate agent that it tells you not to do things because you're too scared to do them mm-hmm. or you're too embarrassed. It tells you, like, you should go and watch that baseball game rather than uh, make that phone call to that stranger you've never met because it's going to be easier to watch baseball than to make that call. And so they, they're, their philosophy is to do what you're most scared of, do what's most difficult first, rather than listening to that drunk monkey. It's a co- piece of their code that really helps their people um, live their best life, live up to their values as an organization that we don't shy away from what's difficult or what's hard. So very unique. You're not going to see that on almost any other company's list of values. Uh, it's not generic at all. In fact, um, at, with Keller Williams, pretty much all their values, uh, I'm sorry, their, their behavior or behaviors in their code requires a story like you just told it. And it needs to be explained. And um, I want to say that storytelling is probably uh, a huge need in communicating the behavioral code effectively, as well as the other part of uh, the, the identity key that we haven't talked about, which is the heritage. Um, and you, you've obviously used storytelling a lot in your book as well. Yes, it's true. And my, both my co-author and I are data nerds. So we are people <laughs> that have been brought up to cre- create charts and look at charts and tables and data and to not start with stories. But this, we found that you know, stories are so much more memorable. 
Um, though, of course, the reason we started with all of this data was we would show up at board meetings with executives, for example, and they would say, I believe culture is important. 90% of them believe culture is important, but I don't know what to do about it or how much to invest in it or if it even is going to affect my bottom line. And so we actually had to start with, with seeing if we could measure culture, if we could prove that it made a difference to the bottom line, and therefore, how much should you invest in it? What is it worth? And it was only once we got through all the data to see if it actually mattered that we could then transition to, great, this works. Now let's tell the stories that bring it to life for your organization. So coming full circle on the question of culture driving performance and, and how do we shape culture, that historically has felt sort of magical to leaders. And they sort of know it's important because there's been studies on great organizations like Apple and um, Whole Foods and Starbucks, for example, that, that show how their culture is making a difference. But uh, how do we manage it? And so they're sort of left to just sort of guess, do it based on gut instinct, or just try carrot and stick approaches because that's what they've, that seems like it has worked in the short term in the past. And so now we, there's an actual process to uh, measure culture, compare it to competitors, and figure out uh, what are the right levers to pull to um, shape our culture more effectively. Exactly. You know, there's a lucky few of us on the planet that are intuitively born knowing that to manage through play, purpose, and potential is the way to lead. Um, and you see great leaders and founders of great companies like Herb Kelleher at Southwest who intuitively got this. Um, but for the rest of us, <laughs> there's now actually a science that you can actually learn. You know, I used to not be a very high total motivation leader. I was very hands-off. I thought people wanted lots and lots of space, and I would smile and be friendly and ask how your weekend was. But I did not invest in creating play or purpose or potential. Um, so for leaders today, what we suggest is that if you're a, on a, an individual contributor or a leader of a small team, to start to learn where your people find play and purpose and potential and really think about how can I increase those three motives for my team. And if you brainstorm a little bit and if you find out what drives each person on your team, you'll usually be able to figure out what those things are and help enhance them. But once your company gets a little larger, it gets harder to figure out what's going on. So we find that that point measurement really comes in handy. Um, we measure the total motivation of the people on your team or across a whole organization, and then you can see things like where Tomo is high or low. So for example, in one organization we measured, um, or in most organizations we measure people who are customer-facing have higher Tomo or total motivation. But in one company we measured people facing customers had lower Tomo, hmm. which was a huge red flag for us. <laughs> like, what is making it so painful to interact with your customers? Um, and you start to identify all of these, these um, patterns or, or things that you really need to start working on as an organization. Lindsay, for folks who want to find out more, how do they get their hands on your book and, and um, learn about your firm, Vega Factor, and, and the work you guys are doing? Yes, our book, Prime to Perform, is on Amazon. It's in major bookstores. It's wherever books are sold. Um, and our website, primetoperform.com, has lots of information that I think will help your listeners. Uh, the first is you can measure your own total motivation there for free, as well as the total motivation of your team or your company. It's a very simple survey that you can just enter in your team's 
information and get a report that will help you facilitate a conversation with your team about their TOMO. We found that just teaching people the language and having a conversation with it goes a huge way to sparking change. That website also has more information about Vega Factor, as you said, which is um, the company that my co-author and I founded to really help organizations transform their cultures. Lindsay McGregor, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure. All right, Engagers. The book again is Primed to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. We'll put a link to Lindsay's website, primedtoperform.com, on our show notes, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash 128, as in episode 128. We'll also include links to her social media, as well as links to her book and the Total Motivation online measurement tool. I hope you'll pick up her book because I truly believe it's a game changer. Today, we talked about a bit about organizational identity, which is one of the most powerful keys to shaping culture to drive performance. But the book also provides practical tips on several other keys and shares data on the relative importance of each key. Now, many of these concepts aren't new to our listeners. and Lindsay was very clear that they're building on over a century of academic research. Previously on Engaging Leader, such as in episodes 20 and 23, we discussed ideas and keys for building or changing the culture of your organization, and we discussed the intrinsic and extrinsic motivations of work in episode 10 regarding Daniel Pink's book, Drive. But I don't think we've ever discussed such a systematic, data-driven approach to shaping a culture that drives performance. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.